Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 33 of Ancient Office Hours. I'm excited for you all to hear this excellent conversation with Dr. Anastasia Yanakidu, a professor of linguistics at the University of Chicago. While working from home and waiting out the pandemic winter last year, I regularly attended online classics and Greek history lectures. One lecture in particular that I was very excited to attend was hosted by Dr. Yanakidu as a joint initiative between the University of Chicago's Center for Hellenic Studies and the Greek Embassy on the history of the Greek language and the benefits of bilingualism. I happened to be midway through my online modern Greek language course at the time, so obviously I had to attend the lecture. I was so fantastically impressed by this lecture that I contacted Dr. Yanakidu almost as soon as the lecture had ended. I am so very thankful that she enthusiastically agreed to join me on the podcast. And as we began speaking, we sort of excitedly fell into a slightly rabbit holy is that even a word? Well, whatever. Discussion about how the movie Arrival is really quite accurate in its portrayal of linguistic theory, emphasized the benefits of bilingualism, chose which language between modern and ancient Greek is more important to learn right now, and about how to keep dying languages alive. We also decided to do something a little different with our traditional poem reading by having it read in Greek. As you can probably tell i am super stoked about this episode and this intro might actually win the unofficial longest and weirdest intro ever award whoops uh anyway enough of me and enjoy the app so thank you thank you thank you for joining me it's wonderful to be here thank you i this is so fun for me so i want to jump right in and ask you how you got into linguistics why linguistics why linguistics? That's a great question, Lexi. Thank you for asking it. As a Greek kid, so I was born and raised in Greece. And so I went to the, the Greek school. And the Greek school is very linguistic. 
I must say, uh, in contrast to the American school. And I've had the experience of the American school through my two children who were born and raised in the United States. So what do I mean by the Greek school being linguistic? I mean that you learn one and by the end of high school, possibly also a second uh, foreign language. So I learned French and I learned English by the end of the high school. At the same time, you also learn ancient Greek and Latin. So when I was in high school and uh, by high school, I mean both middle school and high school. So the last six years of uh, my education, I had to take ancient Greek for four of them and Latin for three of them because I also chose to do more uh, classics and languages. At some point in your education, you need to choose at the last two years. Having this educational goal, like, you know, an exposure to languages makes you be a little more observant about language. Having had ancient Greek was very important for me because it made me realize what the differences were between ancient Greek and modern Greek. Then at the same time, when you go to church, you have medieval Koine Greek. So it's this kind of Greek of, uh, let's say, the past uh, 1500 years or the Greek of the time of Christ, which is not ancient Greek, but it is not modern Greek either. But there is a sense of uh, continuity and difference in the various stages of the Greek language that you're exposed to that makes you be very curious, at least it made me be very curious, and makes you be very competitive. You start looking and say, oh, okay, you know, this used to be like that in ancient Greek, we had infinitive. Uh, now in modern Greek, we don't have infinitive. In ancient Greek, we used to have five cases, there was a dative. In modern Greek, oh, the dative is gone. Or there is a lot of syncretism now between the nominative and the accusative. You start observing these things just as a matter of routine, I think. And if you are a little bit language-minded, as I guess I was. That's how my, um, my interest for language uh, emerged. Uh, it was always uh, also tied to wanting to study abroad. I guess I always wanted to, to go outside of Greece because Greece was a small country and I wanted to take my opportunities. And uh, so that's why I also learned French and, and English and German when I was at college. So when I went to college, I entered linguistics, but in order to study linguistics in Greek, you have to enter the department of philology, which is a department that encompasses linguistics, classics. So classics is part of the department of philology, which includes, of course, classical Greek and Latin, medieval Greek. So there's a component about medieval Greek that you have to study. And then there's uh, modern Greek literature. So I had to study all of this for the first um, two and a half years of my education. And then I uh, majored in linguistics and classics. So yeah, that was the trajectory. Yeah, that's really cool. And it's mm. so nice you were exposed to so many different languages growing up. I know here, you usually are just told to pick one. And if you're lucky, yeah. maybe you'll learn something at home or most of the time. I know. And I think lucky. In, in, in the American system, the study of language or the study of grammar, I should say, is very undervalued. I mean, it is almost as if teachers assume that kids will be scared by studying the grammar or by looking at differences in the grammars of various, uh, between English, say, and French, if they learn French. Or there's no introspection about the grammar of English either. It is remarkable that my children who studied at the lab school, which is a very good school, they never received formal education in the grammar of English. It was all very much like, you know, concept-based or semantic-based 
rather than structure-based. And I think that's a pity because by studying the structure, I mean, when we do chemistry, we study structure. When we do mathematics, we study structure. When we do music, we study structure. The concept that when we study language, we don't study structure is uh, it's exceptional in a, in a way that is not fully justified. Yeah. I definitely relate to that because when I meet or talk to foreign people who are learning English as a second language, they always say, oh, it's so hard. Can you explain some random American concept? Uh, I think I was talking to my French exchange sister, and I remember she asked me a billion years ago, what's going on with the whole I before E except after C rule? And I realized I can't explain anything about English grammar. I just, I learned it because that's what I spoke. I can go through and do complex conjugations for Mm -hmm. modern Greek and I could do that for French. I can't do it for English. I can't even explain what what a conditional or subjunctive sentence is in English. I just know how to say things. Yeah, Yeah. isn't it a pity? It's terrible. And, and learning language makes me realize that even more, which is like even absolutely. more tragic. When you actually have to learn a non-native language, a foreign language, that's when you see actually how useful the skills of grammar can be because they can help you systematize and categorize certain properties of the structure. And, you know, it makes actually language learning much more easy. And I think also there is a missed opportunity to not teach, for instance, older stages of English the language of Shakespeare, you know, I mean, going even all the way back to older forms of English would be, you know, so Beowulf, you know, you can teach a little bit of Beowulf in the native language of a thousand years ago, and it would be interesting and exciting. It would be painful for some students. I accept that. But so is mathematics and so is chemistry and so is anything else that, you know, contains uh, structure. But that's not reason enough not to teach it, you see. So I think it's a missed opportunity. I think another missed opportunity in the American educational system is that they don't teach a lot of foreign languages early on. Mm. America is, has this unique, it's so linguistically diverse and rich. It contains, uh, it's a unique uh, space where you have all these languages being spoken. Many children are bilingual. This is an asset. It should be capitalized upon by the educational system, I think. And again, there is a missed opportunity, sadly, but maybe things will change in the future. I hope so, because from my own bilingual upbringing, French and English at home at school, it was wonderful. So I can speak as someone who had that experience, and I think other people would benefit from it, too. But I think a lot of what we go through stems from this major misconception, which I hope you can help me bust through Mm -hmm. right here, which is I think people don't actually know what the study of linguistics is, because I think when people hear linguistics, they automatically assume, oh, that's just learning a bunch of languages so you can be a polyglot, right? Mm -hmm. Learn some whatever so you can go travel and talk. That's clearly a very different thing. So in terms of the Mm -hmm. academic study of linguistics, you know, how does it differ? And why is it a separate thing from just, I think a lot of people would say, oh, but if you study classics, if you study a modern language and get that major, wouldn't you just learn the language then? Yeah. This is a great question. So linguistics indeed is the study, the scientific study, I should say, of language as a multifaceted phenomenon. So as a phonological phenomenon, as a syntactic phenomenon, as a semantic phenomenon, as a sociological phenomenon. So language, as we know, is extremely diverse and polyhedric, if I can use like a Greek word uh, to describe it. And so linguistics is the study of all of these aspects of what language is. Part of it can be the study of other languages, but there are many linguists that I know that actually speak very few languages or 
maybe even only speak English. The linguistic study is to look at the structure of, of what you study. So if you study, let's say, phonology, you look at the structure of sounds. If you study syntax, you look at the structure of constituents in a sentence. If you study morphology, you look at the interaction between constituents and uh, suffixes and infixes and affixes and prefixes, all these uh, things that, you know, funny words that we use in linguistics. But in any case, these are like our ingredients of language, the building blocks of what language is. Linguists study all of this with the aim to attain a universal theory of language, where universal means a set of rules and principles that guide the learning of human language. So the, the set of rules and principles that guide a child when they enter the world and they have no linguistic powers whatsoever, but we believe have linguistic ability. Linguistics ultimately wants to model what that ability is. What is it? that enables the humans as a species to produce and understand language and then do things with it. So in order to be able to, to have a sense and develop a theory like that, you need to study a lot of languages. You need to study a lot of different languages. Every language has a value and even, you know, very small languages. That's why there is a lot of discussion nowadays about, let's say, Native American languages or languages with very few number of speakers. They are as valuable as language like English or language like ancient Greek, which is exhaustively studied. Okay, so there is a, a sense of egalitarianism in linguistics that stands to the value of a language being language and therefore it has its structure and information that can give us that can then help us build this universal theory of language. But you're right in that linguistics as this scientific field is not very well known even in high school. So you have very few kids that you will encounter in high school and say, oh, I want to become a linguist. My own daughter, actually, she says that she wants to become one only because she's exposed to me and my husband, who is also a linguist. So, you know, she doesn't count because she's biased. She's been exposed. But I think most of the kids in, in, in high school or in elementary school in the United States, but not so in Greece for the reasons I explained, they're not familiar with the concept of language as a field of scientific study. You know, it's very easy to view language as a field of study when it comes, say, to literature. Because, you know, literature also uses language and uses language in various innovative and creative and quite interesting ways. And so it is very normal for a kid, very expected to think, okay, you know, I want to do language, so I'll study literature, I'll study English. But that's, I think, as far as they go, because, you know, more formal education in grammar is lacking, kids are not familiar, they don't become familiar with linguistics. And I think that's a shame. There is a difference because in Europe, there's been a strong philological and grammatical tradition that goes all the way back to antiquity, you know, the ancient Greeks studied grammar a lot, and that continued through the Romans and then, you know, the medieval monks. They were great philologists. They did massive work. And then you have a lot of study of language and modern linguistics emerged in Western Europe as a branch of classical philology. Indo-European linguistics, you know, the, the Green brothers that wrote the, the stories that we know, they were one of the first and most prominent grammarians. They discovered Grimm's Law, which was a phonological rule that allowed us to establish certain equivalences and similarities among European languages that allowed us to formulate the Indo-European hypothesis, which gave birth to modern uh, linguistics. 
And so Europe has this tradition of comparing also because Europe has a lot of linguistic diversity as a matter of its existence, because it has different nations and they all have their own languages. And some of them have multiple languages, you know, like Spain, you have Catalan, you have Spanish and you have Basque. And so you have a lot of linguistic reality that uh, forces the European system to be more introspective about uh, language and linguistic study in a way that the American, with that pressure of one language, didn't allow. So I wonder, because for a lot of kids, I, I don't think, I can't really say I was one of them, but I know a lot of kids who sadly, they struggled with English, they didn't like taking a foreign language. So they associate it with not sort of being fun. And if you were to normally bring up the idea of studying linguistics and language, but breaking it down to more than just trying to learn a foreign language, I think a lot of people would go, oh, no, 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 no. I already hate English. I don't like taking this. Why would I do that? Is there a better way to introduce this idea here in the States? Because I think if there was a way where we could kind of introduce these concepts without having it be scary or tied to something that they already are kind of learning that they don't like, we might be more successful in getting people to go into it. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a great question. It's a question about the method, like how can we make the method of language teaching be a little more interesting or a little more exciting? Of course, the same question applies to mathematics, you know, like... Unless you're math-minded or physics, let's say the science, unless you are, you know, more sciencey, I, I guess you will have the same levels of difficulty in acquiring those fields. And there will certainly be moments where it will not be very fun. And even if you are, say, linguistically minded, when I had to memorize, you know, uh, the so-called initial tenses of all the verbs in Greek and Latin, that was not like, you know, my best idea of fun. So there's always a little bit of not fun component in any kind of learning. But it is true that we have to make language instruction a little more pleasant And I think that part of that can be a little more hands-on, for instance. So you don't have to just give students 10 pages uh, of verbs to memorize. That would be very boring. But you can uh, establish, you can make like uh, study groups and you can have the kids work among study groups with them. Or you can establish, they do this here in Greece, actually, uh, relations like brother or sister relations with other schools. And so you can have, uh, let's say, you know, school X becomes a sister school to X, school X in the U.S., becomes sister school to X, Y in Greece. And so they exchange ideas and they have like um, pen pal relations or even debates and even podcasts in Greek and English. So that would be a way of making it much more fun and more hands-on, more real. And you don't even need to go to, you know, other countries. In the United States, you have all these local communities. So in a city, say, like Chicago, you have all the communities. All you need to do is establish relations with, uh, you know, schools that use non-English language. Then you can, you know, develop an organic relation with your groups to be able to teach that. So that would definitely help with the teaching of foreign language. But, you know, with the teaching of grammar, you know, I guess it would be a little more challenging to, like, make it more attractive. But I think, again, in this case, if you emphasize what the advantages are of being introspective about language, what, you know, what the advantages are of, you know, knowing your grammar well, or, you know, having a broad vocabulary. There are real advantages, okay? You can write better. Therefore, you know, you can get a better chance at, you know, college. 
But, you know, writing better is always a good skill, okay? It is something that gives you abilities, uh, you know, to get a better job, to express your thoughts and ideas. You don't have to become a writer. You, if we teach kids that there is more avenues, even practical avenues, with having better associated with better language skills, that will make language teaching be a little more like math. Like, okay, you have avenues. Like if you're good at math, you know, you can, you know, study economics or you can study fields that require math. If you are ambitious in this way, you need to go through math learning in order to be able to achieve later goals in life. I think if we teach something similar to younger kids about language, that would always be an advantage. And of course, we can teach them that if you speak foreign languages, you can always go and study abroad. You can understand other cultures. You can be more sensitive about, you know, how your own culture relates to other cultures. Because let us not forget that language and culture are very, you know, they're married. They go together. You can't have the one without the other. And so that's always an, an advantage. We hope to have uh, young children especially appreciate. So do, would you consider... So is this a great argument to, I suppose, say, can it be considered a STEM field because it is very scientific in nature? And is this now the beginnings of an argument to say we need to transform this emphasis on STEM into STEAM, where we put mm -hmm. a little A in there for arts? Yeah, that's a very logical conclusion from what I said. This is excellent. Very, very great. Very nice observation, Lexi. Linguistics is very humanistic as a field by its own nature because it studies language, which is deeply human. You know, no other species has human language. Okay, I mean, other species have their own systems of communication and they can be systems. So there is structure in them, but it is not the structure of human language. So it's a very uniquely human project. And so, and as I said, language relates to culture. So a linguist naturally belongs to the humanities because of a subject matter. At the same time, our methodology is that of the STEM sciences. So we work with hypotheses, we study data, like our field is very much data-based. We draw generalizations from the data, which then form, confirm or disconfirm the hypothesis. Then we draw new hypotheses. And again, we compare a lot of data from various languages. And so it is very scientific in, in that sense, in ways that let's say uh, the study of literature isn't in that we require, like our requirement for proof is very, very rigorous. Like if I come and tell you, oh, you know, English is a, a verb subject object language. Okay, VSO, we call it. Well, I mean, I, I can't say that because it goes against the proof that English has subject always first. So there is, there is proof. So I look at my data, you know, Mary went to school, but not went Mary to school. There are other languages that have this as a routine uh, word order. Greek allows it very much. And then there are certain observations that one can make from studying Greek. So language that, you know, allows this word order has, you know, certain properties that follow from that. And we don't observe that in English. So the burden of proof is as rigorous in linguistics as it is in any empirical science. Linguistics is an empirical science. In some ways, it's even more of an empirical science than some of the sciences that are in the social sciences right now. Maybe not STEM because of its nature, but it is definitely social science. In some of the methodologies, were very close to, you know, the data social sciences like psychology, for example, or sociology, or even history or political science, which can be very data-driven and quantitative. Very close to that. And so in some uh, sense, we are a social science and 
Sometimes you find departments of linguistics belong being in the social sciences. We're also humanities because we study, you know, endeavors of uh, the human, since that's language and culture. And certain fields certainly belong to humanities, like when you study, say, you know, sociolinguistics, but it also belongs to the social sciences to the extent that it's experimental and uses data. Certain other fields of linguistics are very much in... Uh, in sync with anthropology. The anthropology at the University of Chicago is part of the social sciences. It's not in, uh, in the humanities. Although again, I think anthropology is a similar field. Like it uses or certain aspects of it use the, the STEM methodology and data and quantity in virtue of the method they should belong to a more scientific field. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and there's a great word for you. Anthropology, one of my favorite examples uh, to, to tell people when, when they don't very think Greek. That, that Greek words um, permeate our, our language. And I'm like, ah, ah, ah. I was like, do you, uh -huh. do you like, do you know what anthropology is? Do you, do you study that? That's Greek. Do you know what anthropos is? Right. Yeah. And most of the time I kind of offer that little tidbit as a, as a fun fact for why you should study Greek and why you should study language. And then they go, oh, that's so smart. Yeah. <laughs> It's incredible. Yeah. So uh -huh. in terms of this just sparked so many different thoughts. I have many, many um, that could take us forever. But the one that I will center on is, so how happy did it make you to see a linguist become the hero of kind of like an action sci-fi film in, when Arrival came out? Because oh. they never make super academics the heroes in any sort of pop culture sense. And so then Arrival comes and then you decode the whole thing and spoiler alert, it's the universal language. It's look, language connects all of us. How realistic was that movie if you were looking at it <laughs> from your linguistic background? Right. So that is, uh, it's, it's a great, that movie indeed, uh, the observation is totally sharp, spot on. And the, the hero is not like some action figure. It's this linguist that decodes uh, this language. And so from that perspective, it's an awesome movie. And I often make my students that take the core class at the University of Chicago, Language and the Human, which I have coordinated for a number of years, I make my students take and watch that movie because it, it really allows you to see the role of a linguist. And it does raise the issue of universality of language, which we touched upon earlier as well, that there is an aspect of us as a species of being human and therefore languages, this universal capacity we have as humans. And uh, at the same time, what that language or that movie portrayed was like a different system. So there was a different language that the extraterrestrials spoke. It was a different system of writing, if we can talk about speaking in that case. So even the concepts of speaking change. And you don't need to go, by the way, to extraterrestrials to see that the concepts of speaking change. If you speak American Sign Language, for instance, or any sign language, you see that the hands do the speaking. So it's no longer speaking in the classical sense. But it is, you know, very linguistic. And that movie uh, illustrated this uh, completely alien system, okay, which, however, was not that alien in the sense that the linguist was able to decode it. So as a system of communication, it wasn't a human language, but it wasn't, if we can call it a transhuman language, because those creatures were aliens, but we think of them as the counterpart of a human in their domain. They are the language possessing creatures of their world. And so 
we have this uh, transhuman and trans language element that, uh, that is there. And that uh, is also motivated by the idea that once you speak that language, and remember that language had a cyclic element in it, so you can start with uh, you know, the present and then the system itself, the writing itself will get you into the future. And so you could see the future, there was this unification of present and future. That idea goes back to uh, the American anthropologist uh, Sapir and Worf, and it's known as the Sapir-Worf hypothesis uh, or linguistic relativity hypothesis. It, it, it is at the center of, of that movie, which says that if you speak a different language, you know, it, it, then your, your system of thought uh, becomes different. And uh, one of the examples that uh, the initial relativity addressed was the example of Hopi, the Hopi uh, Indians and their language, which supposedly didn't contain like markers for the present and the future. So it was a, an observation about the temporal domain, no distinction between the present, the future or the past. So the flow of time is experienced different. Now that is a very strong hypothesis. And you know, since it was uh, conceived uh, in, uh, in the 1930s, you know, a lot of um, uh, additional facts were discovered. For example, we now know that the Hopi do have different markings of, of temporality. So it may not be orthodox or classical temporal marking, but there is a spectral marking and there's mood marking. There are other ways to locate events in time. And so the, the difference is not that you have languages that blend times and languages that don't blend times, but the movie was inspired by that idea. So it was very linguistically relative in that sense. Now we know that language does influence the way we talk about things, okay? So whether a language has a certain word or not will make a speaker of that language choose the word or not. So if you lack words like, you know, famously the Eskimos, they have like, you know, 200 words for snow. English doesn't have that many words. This is another example. But then again, the English speaker does understand. And we do have, you know, different words like, you no know, thunderstorm, avalanche, powder. So there are ways of understanding. Or if I tell you, oh, this was very soft and uh, fluffy snow, you will understand it, even though there is no one word for it. And so language does influence the way we talk about things, and it provides us with certain means and categories that allow us to understand the words. And if my language contains a word like fuchsia, okay, you know that that's a or fuchsia, that's a color, and it's this particular color. But even if your language doesn't have a word, I mean, you can still see that color and understand that fuchsia is different from blue. Right. So it doesn't constrain your perception if your language has a color term or not. But there is a sense in which language does influence the way we talk and which words we're going to use are also going to have consequences of how our interlocutors are going to understand certain things that we say. So from that perspective, certainly language influences thought. So, and it's interesting, the film also highlights, not only does it make linguists the heroes, which is what I love, and which is Very why good. it's one of my favorite movies of all time, because yay, academics, look, look at us. Look, there one was also, it, just a parenthesis, there was also uh, Indiana Jones, who was an academic, but Indiana Jones was an archaeologist. So, you know, he's someone that digs, they go and they do the digging. Yeah, so that. I consider them kind of different. I'm like, no, 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 I want the... I want the nice, no, we very are like the scientific, nerdy yeah. people. Um, nerdy, very good. Right. So 
I, but also it highlights the fact that the entire movie, like the, the armies, which were all headed toward war, they could not have solved this problem on their own. They would have started like nuclear war. And it highlights this, this very valuable role that you can just take a professor of linguistics and mm-hmm. pop them somewhere that you wouldn't necessarily think they belong. Are there a lot of different careers or positions that you could just pop a linguist in that they would just immediately solve a bunch of problems that other people could not find their way out of? Yeah, great, great question. Yes, so the linguist can be the peacemaker. Like in this case, the linguist is the person responsible for avoiding like a Holocaust. So it really is very important. And it also shows that a lot of, you know, animosity or political dispute may in essence be a difference in communication or miscommunication. You know, once you truly communicate, you understand intentions and then you're okay. So definitely there are a lot of things that one can do with linguistics. One can work uh, certainly in peacemaking areas. One can be a diplomat. One can work for the UN. One can translate, especially if one speaks quirky languages, you know, like modern Greek. There aren't very many English speaking modern Greek speakers or Chinese or Japanese or Arabic. Arabic is very much like an upcoming language right now. So uh, definitely if you, or Hindi, you know, like it depends on all these languages that allow someone to go and pursue like an international career are languages that can be studied and offer this opportunity. One, of course, with linguistics can also go into industry and uh, study data. So there is also a branch of linguistics called computer science. And uh, there is a lot of, there are a lot of linguists my students that work for Google and uh, they the work for language recognition projects. So that's also an upcoming field, like, you know, all the automate, automated uh, systems that, uh, you know, when you call and they have perfected, they are perfect nowadays. You call and then you get this human speaking to you and uh, you really get confused thinking that it's a real human and sometimes it is. So these are all works of linguists. Linguists work on, on those projects. Artificial intelligence or machine translation, this has also been a career path for those that are interested in both structure and, uh, and data. And so a lot of our graduates go there. Academic career, of course, but teaching. Teaching can also be, especially if you study bilingual, bilingualism and bilingual education. There's a lot of discussion right now about bilingual education. In Chicago, we have also an initiative that I'm very pleased to participate on. We call it Bilingualism Matters or Bilingual Matters. And uh, it's a very important initiative that spans through, you know, very early stages of education up to college study. And so linguists can work. You can study any manifestation of bilingualism from babies to adults, and uh, you can help develop curricula uh, for, for bilingual groups. Um, there's massive demand for curricula. There are good curricula for Spanish, although not very good, but you know, there's so many bilingual communities and so many bilingual schools that you really need to work. Like if you want to work in language teaching, there's a lot of options uh, for you. So as a linguist, you can do a lot of theory, but there's a lot of practical things that, uh, that, you, can, uh, that you can help with. Yeah. I'm going to ask you a very difficult question, and it's okay if you do not have an answer, because I realize that this is a question that probably doesn't have one answer, but I'm going to mm-hmm. ask it anyway, because it's fun. Mm-hmm. Would you say as a linguist, 
are there certain foreign languages that you would recommend somebody learning that would be particularly almost like more useful to know? Because I, I mean, it's a hard question because everyone who speaks some language is going to say, yeah, you should learn my language because of these, these, and these uh-huh. benefits. But sort of as someone who studies just language and the science behind it and how you put it together, you know, can you say something like, oh, I think if you learn these two or three languages, you would find these almost more helpful than learning these other right. ones? Yeah. So this is a great question. And as I said, like we linguists are egalitarian. And so every language has its own value and it's valuable as a source of analysis and information. Absolutely. But now the question you're asking is a utilitarian question, right? So for example, if you are a child in Greece learning you know, Greek as your native language, and then you, know, you want to further your studies, you want to go abroad, you know, the question arises, which other languages should I study? Okay, so if you are in Greece, you know, I guess studying Chinese won't be very useful, although Chinese is spoken by billions of people, but it wouldn't be the first language I would recommend, you know, unless, you know, you are of a Greek Chinese family or there is some, you know, relation of, uh, of, of the potential student to, to go and study in China. So utility is going to be based on what the needs are. It's also constrained by the geographical space in a way. So the Greek is going to go to Europe to study or to the United States. So there we go. English immediately emerges as a very important language to study. It's the language of, it's, as I say, the Greek of today, because Greek was a very important language, you know, during the time of Alexander or during the Byzantine time for more than 1500 years, Greek was spoken in Southeastern Mediterranean and it was the lingua franca of the time. That's why the Bible was written in Greek. It wasn't written in Latin. I mean, if the, the Hellenized Jews that wrote the Bible wanted it to be spread, it had to be written in Greek. So English is the language that will open up more educational opportunities and more professional opportunities. There's also massive, wonderful literature being written in, in, in the English language. And so both on a utilitarian basis, like, you know, you want to study or you want to go seek your fortune elsewhere, and for aesthetic reasons, you know, movies, uh, literature, and so forth, English would be a language that one has to learn today, you know, be, in order to be able to, to go abroad and study. So from the European perspective. And I think this holds for all the Europeans, regardless of whether you are kid in Spain or in Italy, you know, English will be your first language if you want to go out. Now, there are other, I want to frame the question from the perspective of a child like me, like I had to learn, uh, you know, a foreign language in order to be able to succeed. And, you know, then there are other languages like French or German, which are the languages of, of commerce or professional uh, expertise. And again, a lot of, if you if you want to study literature, if you want to study political, uh, modern political science, I think, you know, speaking French is very important because you've got a lot of, of philosophy. You've got a lot of, uh, you know, philosophers having written in French or, you know, theories of literature. So there is the utilitarian basis is formed by what the need is. And if your need is educational, if your need is professional, and if you live in Europe, that's where you're going to be. Now, if you are, if, you, if we pose exactly the same question in the context of the United States, you know, the problem of English is definitely solved because, hey, we all speak English, so we got it. And so then the question is not so much a question of utilitarianism, 
Although there's also a question of utility too. So for instance, uh, let's say that you want to do international relations and you want to go uh, and uh, study international relations in China, or you want to be you know, a diplomat in China, you want to do politics and you want to do China. You know, in that case, utilitarian concerns would necessitate that you learn Chinese, although Chinese would be a massively difficult language to learn because it would involve a different like writing system. Mm -hmm. But again, there's massive literature and there's a lot of other things that can be gained. There's also a lot of value based on, let's say, family traditions. So all the smaller languages in the United States, you know, even the European languages, German or French, Greek, I will put Greek as a special language among them. It's also, you know, these are the families of immigrants that came, they spoke these languages. Many of those languages disappeared or stopped being spoken, you know, after a first or a second generation. So it's worth reviving, you know, for connections to the family traditions, for example. And that can be a strong motivation for people to study. I would say, is there, okay, so maybe... Like a universal sort of, set of languages that such that you have to universally... No, I, I guess, so if you were to recommend based on, if someone is really big into etymology, that would just help them understand even our language better. If you are, are into there... etymology, you study Greek, absolutely, Greek and Latin. And let me also, you know, I have underplayed the role of classical languages, but they're very important. Like there are so many you know, borrowings of Greek and Latin in the vocabulary of English, that it will be, again, if your goal will be to learn, uh, to be introspective about vocabulary and learn the origins of words, Greek and Latin would definitely be highly recommended. Absolutely. And I would say also for Greek, I mean, if you want to study classics or if you want to study some let's say you're a political theorist and you want to study, you know, classical political thought, I think you have to learn Greek in order to be able to read, you know, Aristotle. Not very many people do it, but if you are a philosopher or a theorist that does study antiquity, you know, I think you can always learn from the translation. And there are many that uh, actually read uh, the translation, but there are a lot of things that are lost in translation, especially when you want to study, let's say history and you want to study the sources and you want to study what contemporaries say about particular events it is important to be able to read uh, those languages. So, you know, you, if you study the Roman world, you have to know Latin and you have to know Greek to be able to, to study it accurately. And I would, I would say, say, yeah. If, if you are someone who's very interested in, yes, etymology, but not, I suppose, utility and being able to use it to do something is not mm -hmm. a factor. Would you recommend learning ancient or modern Greek? I mean, obviously, Modern, if you want to go speak to people, but if you're just interested right. in, I want to, I, I just love language and breaking it down and learning the nitty I would gritty. recommend ancient Greek. Yeah, I would recommend ancient Greek, unless you want, you know, there are practical reasons you want to go to Greece. I think studying ancient Greek allows you to learn a lot of things besi besides just the strictly linguistic skills, but it also allows you to recognize certain you know words that are in modern day vocabulary so if you're in etymology definitely but i think also if you know ancient greek you are able to study a lot of what is foundational in our civilization today and i think there is an advantage in being able to read those words i mean those works in the original words there is a certain you know originality and authenticity that you get 
that you don't otherwise get if you just, you know, regurgitate or you just read through a translation. And so I know it's, modern yeah. Greek and ancient are very different. We've definitely established this and a lot of yes. ancient Greek learners and modern Greek learners will tell the, will say the exact same thing. But in terms of sort of helping build on the argument for if you're just interested in not so much the practical use of language mm-hmm. and you do choose to study ancient, can you give us an example of an ancient Greek word that is sort of filtered through that modern speakers would still use or understand that would really help someone learning oh, language? Oh, yeah, there are massive. I mean, the vocabulary, so the, uh, the vocabulary of modern Greek is massively ancient Greek. So I think if we just look at words, I would say, and although I haven't myself done like a a data analysis or a statistical analysis, I would say in terms of vocabulary, 70% of the words that we use today have ancient Greek origin, maybe even more, and they appear unchanged. Like, um, you know, I'll give you an example. Although, so the word for uh, water in modern Greek is nero. So it's not the ancient Greek hudor which is uh, the ancient Greek word for water, and hudor relates to water. You find eudatinos, so watery, so of water, you find it there. You find even the word hudor being used in a more formal register to indicate that, uh, you know, we have, uh, you know, that I'm of higher education. So the word is used, and although, again, the same word like somi, so somi is the modern Greek word for bread, but there's also the word artos, which is the ancient Greek word for bread. And the word for bakery is artopio. So you use the word artos, pio, from to make. Again, the word pio, pieo, in ancient Greek is to make. In modern Greek, we don't say pieo, but we say kano, which is uh, another word. But we have pio, artopio, in, you know, in those derivatives. And of course, we also have pima, poem, which comes from exactly the same uh, word. So the vocabulary is very alive. And uh, in some cases, as I said, you use both modern Greek and ancient Greek words like aspros and lefkos is another uh, example. Aspros is the word for white. Lefkos is the word for another word for light, for white. But it's the ancient Greek uh, word, leukos. And so th- that word is used for more abstract notions of, uh, of whiteness, like, you know, a white lie would be lefko, not aspro, but the shoni would be aspro, although it could also be lefko too. So you, I think an educated Greek engages with the ancient Greek vocabulary very, very strongly. And if you go to church, you are also exposed to the koine, which is the medieval Greek which is very much the Greek that followed like the the classical Greek. So you're familiar. The average Greek person is exposed to a lot of ancient Greek. And so it's it's part, it's an organic, the vocabulary, the structure of modern Greek has changed a lot. So it's it's, it's very different. But again, like the school, the educational system also doesn't let you forget that there is this uh, continuity, that there are early stages of the language. And it doesn't, the educational system itself enables you to continuously engage and compare. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And there's a lot of words that may have changed a bit from ancient to modern. But then mm-hmm. I noticed even in English, you know, we we use that root. And it's pretty much, it sounds the same. So when I was doing Greek just the other day, I was thinking about the word um, archaea, right? Archaea. Ar- mm-hmm. Like archaic when we use that right. all the time. Oh, that's so archaic. It's so old. I'm like, oh, well, that literally means 
ancient and right, right. So right. I'm like, oh, okay. So making those connections. Yeah, yeah. Just seeing how language travels over and kind of what we take and does the meaning stay the same or does it change? Yeah, it's, absolutely. And sometimes the meaning changes. So you have the same words, the meaning does change. But again, there is this sense in Greek, especially of, of this continuity that, is, that you speak a language that is very old, that, uh, you know, that um, carries a lot of weight in it but also language that is very much alive. I should also mention that for many years since the modern Greek state was created in uh, the late 1820s, there was an issue about the language. We call it the glossical zitima, the linguistic question. And the question was, what will the language be of the new modern Greek state? And there were two approaches at the time. One was the more classically minded uh, intellectuals like Adamandius Korais, who uh, were also the representatives of the so-called modern Greek enlightenment. And they believed that the language of the modern Greek state has to be close to ancient Greek. Now, at the time in the 1800s, the language that the Greeks spoke, like the Greek people, was very similar to modern Greek. It's, it was, it's a branch of modern Greek. Very few differences with the standard modern Greek today, and of course, regional differences. But if we put regional differences aside, it was modern Greek. It had already lost the dative. It had lost the subjunctive. It had lost the infinitive. A lot of those changes had taken place like centuries before. For intellectuals of the new, of Greek nationalism and the modern Greek state, uh, the modern Greek state had to have a language that would be worthy of its past, okay? And that would elevate the tongue of the people. And that, yeah, so there was, so an, an artificial language was created, we call it katharevusa, purist, kathari, from the Greek word kathari, which means to clear, to be clear and pure, to purified. And so that was an artificial language based on ancient Greek and modern Greek. And it was basically a version of modern Greek with a lot of ancient Greek endings, infinitives, datives, and it was ornamented, decorated modern Greek, because there was a sense that just having the, the language of the people is too vulgar. It's too, and that again, I present this as an example of engagement with antiquity. Like the intellectuals, they, they saw the modern Greek project as a project that you know, continues the glorified project of the past and that that was reflected in the language as well. And so Greece actually, modern Greece had diglossia for more than a hundred years. Uh, it was only in the in the 1940s that so more than a century that modern demotic Greek actually took grounds in education, and it was until 1981. So when I was a child in Greece, in uh, in high school, I learned to read uh, and write Greek in the so-called polytonic system. So all the the stresses and the aspirations and all these diacritics that were placed on the Greek text in the Alexandrian period, in the Hellenistic period, they had no phonological value in modern Greek. So there was no aspiration. It was all lost. So they were just pure, purely decorative and to indicate the relation with the past. So, and that used to be taught in the Greek school until 1981. I still write in the polytonic system because I learned it as a child. And so think that, you know, people like my generation and I, don't think of myself as very old. You know, we had that, like the 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 kafarevus and the purest language and engagement with ancient Greek was very much alive. It wasn't like dead. So that's one of the things. When I come, when I came to the United States, I had the sense like it was the first time where I had I was told that 
oh, ancient Greek is a dead language. Because in my tradition, it, well, it wasn't dead at all. It was something that I engaged in. But I think that, you know, yeah, for the Westerner, I guess ancient Greek was understood as a dead. Although, you know, it's pretty much alive. Modern Greek is like the descendant of it. Well, in this country, I think we just call anything a dead language that you don't speak if you go to a foreign country, right? It's, I think we have this very basic understanding of, oh, well, no one really speaks Latin. You just read that stuff unless you're in the church. And then they're like, oh, then you have ecclesiastical Latin, but that's not classical. It's different. And it's like, well, but they're, they're all related and you... You take things. Yes, and sometimes it survives. The same thing. So I'm glad you brought up ecclesiastical Latin because ecclesiastical Latin was alive. And, you know, people that go to church, they still listen to it. And it's, it's you know, it gives you a familiarity in that particular sphere of your activity where the language is pretty much alive. I mean, you understand it. Some people will pray in that language. The same thing with biblical Hebrew. The Jewish people, after, you know, centuries, they they lost Hebrew, and it was only a liturgical language, biblical Hebrew. And then it revived, you know, in the 20th century, because, of course, the Jews of Europe, they spoke, you know, different languages themselves. And so there was no way to communicate. So biblical Hebrew was recruited to be the basis of modern Hebrew. And uh, it was a very successful experiment. So it wasn't dead. That's the point. So it was in the sphere of liturgy, but it was there. And, you know, you can't call a language dead if it is still spoken and it is used. Yeah. Yeah. And what what and it's funny because now we we, we when we classically think about languages like Latin and ancient Greek as dead, but we still keep them alive because we still use parts of them now. So what makes it even more tragic is for the languages that we would, by all accounts, really call dead are ones that I think people are not aware of. Like, it's just, it's the, the mindset is different. So when I was studying in the UK mm-hmm. and I studied in Ireland for a bit as well, I was talking to a lot of people who speak Irish and they said, well, our language is dying. We don't have very many places left in Ireland mm-hmm. where we speak. And I think in terms of where regionally it's just kind of Galway and a little bit sort of in the north I think but but really it's it's kind of it's it's dying and I was shocked when I learned that oh yeah they were like did you know that the Isle of Man had its own language called Manx it's dead and I was like okay (laughs) what what do you mean by dead I was like I study a lot of old languages they're not dead and they're like no no no. the last speaker died in 19 was 60 something it's gone and so I just studied kind of the the branch the branches of the Celtic language tree Beautiful. How many languages are actually gone? I was like, no one can gone. speak Cornish, Breton, yeah. Manx. Uh, very few speakers left. Yeah. And this yeah. is, I mean, you're touching upon something very important. So languages do die. The, and once their speakers are not there, and, and I think this is crucial, once there is no written tradition, It is the written tradition that allowed ecclesiastical Hebrew and Greek and Latin to survive a lot of tradition in these languages, okay? So that, like, uh, the language being written allows it to survive and being read and being used. And if a language is, you know, regional or is spoken by smaller communities, a lot of Native American languages died this way or, you know, smaller languages because they're oral. And when you're oral, you depend on your speakers a lot. And so once the speakers are gone and there are no new children learning the language, the language will die. And linguistic death is, you know, it's it's, it's a fact. It's an unfortunate fact, maybe, because as we said, 
each language is valuable because it contains information that you know can make us alter theories or support theories i mean it can potentially inform us but on the other hand you know languages are living organisms you know just like our body eventually dies languages do eventually die but the death is again because there is no writing and because there's no community speaking it but if you have community speaking so with the ancient languages you had community speaking them you had writings and people engaged with them like during the byzantine times like the Byzantines and the monks in uh medieval monks in western i mean they studied the classics massively so it was pretty much alive it was used but once you don't have the communities then unfortunately they die so is the real lesson here that even if speakers of a language die out and they're all gone as mm. long as they've written things down and there's some mm-hmm. sort of written evidence we can, at least in the future, try to Absolutely. pick it back up and save it and teach it. But if you're, if it's the other way around, if you don't write anything and you just have a community of speakers and they're gone, right. that's then, really how it dies. Yeah. So it's really the Latin said, so important for the writing. The writing is very important. Scripta manent, as the Latin said, right? Like you have to, yeah, the, the writing was an amazing innovation, amazing innovation because it allowed you know the language to stay and the ideas to stay it was very important for the ideas and therefore for the communities to extend beyond time like writing makes a language timeless and even though the native speakers no longer exist like the romans died and the ancient greeks died you can view latin as having evolved into the romans languages and you can view Greek as having evolved into the modern Greek. And so it's not the language itself didn't die, but it evolved. And you have new communities that engage in these newer stages of the language. At the same time, however, the ancient language itself is alive because you have a communities of similarity that go and take it. But even if you don't have communities of similarity, you know, someone whose native language is not Greek, but something else can learn it. And there is enough written material to study that you know they can even speak it if they want especially when we talk about greek and latin there's so much in writing if we talk about hittite or luvian so these are ancient languages that are really dead or ungaritic you know these are really truly gone there's uh, th- th- we have like written records but not so much so again it's like how much record you have also matters like, you know, with Greek and Latin, we have a lot. And so we can pretty much reconstruct the language. And But, you know, with Luvian or with Hittite, very little. That, you know, makes it, or with Sumerian, like, again, the text. What kind of texts do we have? Do we have extensive texts like, you know, the Odyssey or the Iliad? That's a lot of text. Or, you know, classics. Or then, you know, in Greek, we've got like medieval Greek, a lot of like patristic literature in written. So a lot of record with various genres as well. So it's not just having a written record, it's like having a variety of genres and having a lot of it that allows engagement with the language. And a lot of them have to build off of each other, don't they? I mean, we have a ton, but we do have a fair amount of old Egyptian texts and hieroglyphs uh-huh. but you know nobody could figure that stuff out until Champollion was like oh wait wait, wait. I got the right. Greek let me just yes. work backwards and I'm like okay right. so now we can study that but what do you do like do does hieroglyphs get decoded if Champollion doesn't have 
the Greek and figures out the Greek equivalent. No, the Greek was instrumental. Greek was instrumental in being able to decode. And there are still hieroglyphic or, you know, ancient scripts that look like hieroglyphs that have not been decoded. Like linear A has not been decoded. We don't know it. Uh, other, you know, scripts that were found in the Mediterranean or on the island of Crete, like the Festus, the, the disc of Festos, also haven't been deciphered. Although there is, I think, recently some discussion from a Cambridge group that says that they have deciphered it and that it's a prayer to some goddess. But, you know, there are still a lot of scripts that are not deciphered. Again, the scripts or the hieroglyphs, we have very little writing. So one of the advantages of the Greek system was that the, there was education in, in the Greek polis, like in, in the Athenian polis especially, like the citizens, at least the male citizens, were educated and the female ones could get some education too. There were certainly inequalities, but there was a concept in which uh, there wasn't an imperial concept of, 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 of writing. Like in many imperial structures, like in Persia or in the Sumerians, in the old imperial domains, writing was just a property of, uh, of the elite. But in the Greek canon, it's not, and in the Roman afterwards, it's not just the property of the elite. You know, the people can be educated, and so it reaches out and it becomes mass writing. You have a lot, you know, people write, you know, for the burials, or they write poems or curses, you know, for their lovers. So it becomes something that everyday people do, not just the rich or government officials. And so that helps, again, you know, having more, more of the writing, and that helps uh, keeping the, the language alive. I love how yeah. you mentioned Linear A, because when people think of the Minoans on Crete and Bronze Age collapse, mm. a lot of people will think of Linear B and say, oh, okay, well, we've translated Linear B. So why can't we translate Linear A since they look similar? but they're very different. different. Script. Yeah, they're but... very different. Yeah, they're very different. So linear A is more like a hieroglyphic, I, we would say. It's still not, it's not the syllabus. It's definitely, it's not like linear B. So the hypothesis is that maybe it is the indigenous language before they became Hellenized. So it's, um, or maybe it is some kind of like Mediterranean script that was a borrowing. On the other hand, the, the linear A itself is not like identical to some other script, but Egyptian script or some other, you know, it's very, very interesting. Or the Festos disc, it's, it's a quite unique uh, element itself. It's a beautiful, uh, it's a pity I don't have a copy of it out, but you wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to see it anyway. I can post but, yeah. a picture of it um, uh, or yeah. link it on the show notes, but it is, yeah. it is gorgeous when I saw it in the museum. I was like, oh, this is so pretty. It's I wish very, we yeah. knew what it said. And, um, you know, who knows if Linear A will ever be translated, but it's one of the great mysteries left Absolutely. to be solved linguistically. It's, I don't, I don't think right. it's like the linguistic holy grail, but it's pretty close. I think it's pretty close because... It I is. It's one screen. of those great mysteries. And again, it's one of these great cases where the language gives you a window to the civilization. You know, you see that and you say, oh, there was this, you know, old um, civilization that, you know, had its own writing and, uh, you know, nothing remained of it. But this remained, you know, in a way, the importance and the power of writing goes beyond language. It's really about memory. You know, it's really about memory. It keeps the tradition alive. It keeps the poems alive, you know, the literature. It's, it's a very important, even, you know, the imperial records, which are, 
relatively boring, uh, but it gives you a sense of how people lived and what mattered for them. They had wine and they had olive oil, which you know they have perennially in this part of the world. So it's it's very important. It's a window into the past. It's and oral cultures also have through orally transmitted traditions, like you know songs or dances. These function also as windows into the past, but they're more fragile because they're more like once the community stops existing or if the community espouses a new culture or a new language, and this has happened for a lot of native uh, communities, for example, then this whole thing is gone. Or, you know, if it's not written, there's no memory of it. And, you know, it's, it's gone. So the Greeks and the Mediterranean people were very lucky in a way that, uh, that they left us these uh, records. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, obviously, I could talk about this for ages My more. Alexia, but, I uh, see. Yeah, the meeting yes. is at eight o'clock. I sent them an email as we okay. were speaking. I know we could talk about this forever. Mm-hmm. So I want to leave us on that amazing mystery. And I want everyone to sort of dream and hope that Linear A gets translated. But the very yeah. last thing that I want us to do, because yes, every guest, this is my favorite part of the entire podcast. If you could read us, and, and this is something different and something very special. Mm-hmm. that I'm very excited to test out. Uh, foreign language reading of our poem, uh-huh. which is normally read in English. So here I will pull up for you the Greek version of Ozymandias. Mm-hmm. Very happy with to you. There we go. Hopefully you can see it. I can make it bigger if you need me to. No, no, know. it's good. I can see it. No problem. No problem. Oh, Great. it's so beautiful. Great. So if you could read the poem and then just, you know, quickly give me your thoughts on what this poem, you know, means, what does it evoke and just what messages does it offer us in the future? Mm-hmm. Great. Okay. It's a fantastic thing. Really very nice to be very happy to, to do. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Συνάντησα έναν ταξιδιώτη από χώρα αρχαία. Είπε, τεράστια, δίχως κορμό. Δύο πόδια πέτρινα υψώνονται στην έρημο. Κοντά τους, μέσα στην άμμο, βυθισμένο ένα θρηματισμένο πρόσωπο. Τα σκυθροπά του χείλη, πτυχωμένα σε ένα χαμόγελο ψυχρής υπεροχής, λένε ο γλύπτης του πως διάβασε σωστά αυτά τα πάθη, που ακόμα ζούνε χαραγμένα στα άψυχα επί τα πράγματα. Το χέρι που τα περιγέλασε και την καρδιά που τα θρέψε. Και πάνω στο κρυπίδι, Αυτές οι λέξεις αχνοφαίνονται. Ο Ζημανδίας, το όνομά μου. Ο Βασιλεύς των Βασιλέων. Κοιτάξτε τα έργα μου. Ισχυροί και απελπιστείτε. Άλλο τίποτα δεν μένει. Γύρω από τη φθορά των κολοσιαίων ερηπίων, απέραντη, γυμνή, μόνη έρημος και πίπεδη, απλώνεται μακριά. It's so beautiful. It is so it's, beautiful. It's so fun. And it's even more beautiful in Greek, but I'm very biased. So you will be able to read it too, my dear uh, Lexi, very soon. It's so beautiful. It really is. And I think like what I get, and I think it connects to what we were just saying is, is this connection. So you have the Erimos, you have the desert and you have the Erimos that are plonete makria, the desert that, you know, is impersonal and huge. And it's just this vast expanse. And then you see this hand, you see Ozymandias, you see something great, but it's lost into the desert of, of forgetting. I think it's, it's, it raises this issue of forgetting and memory. And uh, it is something great, something that once was great, the king of kings, but now it is just, you know, a little remnant in the desert. And I think it's still valuable. It is still alive. Like the moment that, You read who it is, Ozymandias or Ramses or Defteros, like the most important, you know, pharaoh of Egypt. You know that it was someone big. So even though he's dead, he's still alive. He becomes alive at those moments. And I think that moment of becoming alive is, is valuable. Um, it teaches us that, you know, it's important to engage with the past. It's important to not forget. And it's important to... Uh, to know and recognize greatness, even if it comes in these small moments. And of course, that certain greatness is perennial and it's eternal. And no matter whether you're now, you know, it's a pharaoh without his, uh, his structures, without his temples and without his people and without mm. the civilization, he's isolated there. It's like, you know, small statue of himself, but nevertheless, it becomes alive that moment. And he was the king of kings, that's it. He was, and therefore is eternally. It's very pretty, very nice. You made me yeah. think. Yeah, it's this question of immortality. What is what does it mean to be immortal? What does it mean to have your name last forever, to be remembered? I read it in either high school or college. I feel like I read it in high school because I've I've lived with this poem for so long and it's it's my favorite yeah. of all time. Just absolutely nothing compares to it for me. Yeah. And it's very just strong. such a great statement based on history and th these very humanistic ideas, but also as a, a political statement by Shelley on the nature of political power. It's so ephemeral, it'll go away. You need right. to, you know, do something, be good, be remembered, because then otherwise no one will care. Right, right. Find you. Yeah. 
thinking about it in that way, the last question I ask every single guest, and I love the variability of the answers, is if we think about our modern culture today, our society, is there something that we would consider a modern Ozymandias, like something we think is so great, so amazing, but like realistically in 2000 years, is it going to be great? Is it even going to be remembered? Yeah, this is, yeah, such a, such a great question. Uh, very, very deep question. I think in, a, in many ways, heroism and, you know, thought about posterity is not something that, that characterizes, you know, modern societies or the modern man. I think modernity created a human that is more about the here and now, you know, grasp the now. And it's not so much about glory, you know, or sacrifice, like, you know, you die and just to be remembered. Don't value, you know, the actual utility of your life right now or the consequences, but, you know, that type of heroism that came with antiquity and characterized almost every culture in antiquity that greatness, I don't think it's something that characterizes the societies that came after modernity. And so, or to the extent that they engaged with the, uh, with the ancient world, they definitely continue to have these high ideas. And we see that in Shelley, and we see that in, you know, the American founding, and we see that in the European enlightenment. I mean, we see the thought uh, engages with those great, and a lot of the projects of modernity were great, you know, the modern liberal societies, you know, the way we want to build them based on equality and based on uh, democracy. I would say the revival of democracy is one of the great, you know, heroic things that, that we want to be remembered or the, the rediscovery of democracy and the reinterpretation of it, because the interpretation of what democracy was in ancient Athens and what democracy is today in, in the modern world are two very different concepts. But there are certain things that they share about the decision-making of the people and self-government. And I think this is one eternal and immortal kind of idea that I think is worth you know, preserving and that will be remembered in the future, especially if we have to fight with authoritarianism, which is, you know, I think the struggle between democracy and authoritarianism is a, a kind of eternal theme as well. And, you know, hoping that democracy wins, although from history we know it's not always the case <laughs> and that, you know, things can turn really sour. Uh, I think that's one of, uh, of, of the legacies of, of modernity, like the democracy and, and the freedom and, the, and the, freedom, the freedoms of men, you know, to, to free expression, to free inquiry, to free thought. These are things that are worth, uh, that will remain, I think, or the struggle for equality. These are things that will remain from our era, hopefully, if we don't end up in some dark future, you know. But even if we do, these are the things that we should be striving for. Now, I, I don't know if you're asking me if we have like any figures that will. It I doesn't know, have like, to be. It, it didn't have yeah. to be. I mean, you know, some people will say a person, some people. The best example I ever got was um, a professor of mine who I interviewed, and he pointed to old casinos in Atlantic City and said, really? well, at the time, <laughs> didn't we think those were going to be the greatest thing, the future? Yeah. yeah, they're all abandoned, crumbling and just being destroyed. Right. So right. it could be anything. I've, I've had people say things like capitalism, you know, who knows? They're, they're very theoretical. Yeah. Some people say technology, cell phones. I think yesterday someone said memes. Memes, yeah. So. I know people would say, I would say like, you know, maybe I'm too old to think in terms of memes, but I think, you know, the, I mean, 
iPhones or kind of like technology will definitely be also another element that will stay in the future. But whether it will be heroic or not, I don't know. Because I, I framed the question in terms of like, you know, the heroic, the, the good things that, mm -hmm. you know, will have to, to stay. And, you know, judging from the Greek, like certain good things will remain. I, I believe as an optimist, I'm an eternal optimist as a person. And so I do believe that, you know, good ideas and good habits and, you know, good objects remain. Look at the anti-Kithera mechanism, you know, that's, it's like, it remains. So certain things, the things that are valuable uh, will remain. And I think most of the valuable things we should be looking still, we should be looking for in the sphere of ideas rather than technology. Um, yeah, I think that's a completely, completely valid, completely valid answer. And obviously, as you can tell, I'm very comfortable in the linguistic space. This is my Absolutely. favorite type of conversation to have. Yeah. This has been so fun for me, but I know you have for to me run. Too. So, for me too. You know, I hope we can keep the conversation going. It's very fortuitous that you're usually mm -hmm. based here in Chicago. I loved the emphasis on linguistics because, and it was a kind of positive surprise for me too. It was great because it allowed me also to wear my linguist hat and, you know, speak about Greek, but within this more broad uh, understanding. And, and I think- And that's what I want to bring to We also do a service to linguistics, like attract people to the field. It's not like, as I said, that they know about it in high school. So I and think that's it what I'm. Useful. That's what I'm here for. You know, I want to spotlight a lot of these fields that you may not conventionally think of as dying or needing help, but they yeah. do. That's definitely, as I see it, my job. I, you know, yeah. so seldom get to deal with true linguists because most of my friends are very much on the classicist or, or Egyptological yeah, no, side. Yeah. So it's, it's very rare. I get to go kind of into the nitty gritty of the grammar. And so I always yeah. jump at the Perfect. chance to do so. Yeah. So Great, thank you, thank you, thank you for thank joining you for me, taking me. time out of your day. And I'm going to pop this in because I have no other opportunity to, to, to do it, essentially. But, Efaristo Parapoli. Oh, parakalo, parakalo. Ise efprosdikti. You're very welcome, Poliora. You were a great interviewee, by the way. Isuna exeretiki parapolikali. You, 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 I mean... The questions you asked, the way you asked them, it was just fantastic. It was great. Oh, great job. Oh, Bravo. Bravo. Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.